0: God, we thank you this morning that you are over all, and we thank you that Jesus, King Messiah, rules over all. I pray this morning, as we understand again what it means to live for you, uh, and not just in word, but indeed what that looks like and, and how that might manifest in our lives. I pray that you would give us your wisdom to know how to live out your commands. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, and before we dive into that, let me tell you a little bit about where we've been and then a little bit about what's coming up. So first of all, thank you to all of you who were here yesterday uh, for our conference. Uh, We had about 200 people here. I had a great time learning together what it means to pursue holiness and what it means that our God is holy and what that uh, implies for us and how we are to live out as holy people for him. And so thank you for coming. Uh, that was yesterday. Looking forward, uh, just as kind of a heads up, we are going to be in Luke 11, I think, through the first part of December. At least that's the way I've sort of mapped it out. And then we're going to take a short break Uh, to focus specifically on the Christmas season and then we'll return uh, to this amazing gospel after Christmas. Christmas and Easter are the two holidays each year where we pause and we pay particular attention. Other than that, I like to jokingly say, we don't follow the Hallmark calendar. Uh, In other words, uh, there are lots of other holidays uh, that are man-made holidays, and we may acknowledge those from time to time, uh, but we typically stick to verse-by-verse teaching through a book of the Bible, and that's what our hope is to return to then after Christmas. So, for our text this morning, I want to overlap a little bit about with what we covered last week, because Last week sets the stage for what we're going to learn today. So if you're in Luke 11, I want to go back to verse 21 and begin reading from there, although most of our focus this morning will be on verses 24 to 28. So follow along. I'm going to start reading Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 21. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. Amen. We'll end there for this morning. Up in uh, the, one of the things, rather, that we learned last time, and as you look at verse 21 and up in that little section. We learned that no man, no human, can conquer a hard human heart. There is no amount of coercing or pleading or begging or convincing that can move a heart that's centered on self to be a heart that's centered on Christ. Why is that? Well, verse 21, if you look there, tells us. It says, the hard heart is the palace of the strong man. That's another reference to Satan. Satan guards his palace, a hard heart, with tenacity. He guards it with a territorial mindset. He's he's strong. In the parable of the soils, the hard heart is described as the well-trodden path. So even the hard heart who hears the seed of truth, when that falls, even that, Satan snatches it away to prevent belief. The hard heart of a human is barricaded by blindness and a sense of self-autonomy. It can't even see itself for what it really is. It does not understand its spiritual ruin. And so it tries to find fulfillment in creation instead of the creator. Oblivious to its eternal state, Jesus pictures those ensnared by Satan in Matthew chapter 16 as being guarded by the gates of hell. All unbelievers, on whatever spectrum of unbelief they are, whether they are obstinate toward Christ, hard, hard, or whether they're just simply disinterested in Christ, no real uh, reason to pursue him. All of those, every unbeliever is kept by Satan as his spoils from God because Satan hates God. He hates God because he wanted to be God And he tried to ascend the throne, and as a result, he and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven, never to be redeemed, never to be given forgiveness, never to receive the mercy and kindness of God for their sin. And so as retaliation against God, Satan is determined to take as many as he can with him as he heads toward his eternal destination. The Bible tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He deceives humans. He provides temporary pleasures to humans. He, he promises human power and sensual satisfaction all the while knowing that everyone who joins him will eventually join him in the eternal lake of fire. There is one thing and only one thing That can conquer a hard human heart. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is the pillar and buttress of that truth, we're told. The church is the herald of what Christ has accomplished that can free the human soul from the grip of Satan. And so, as the church, not, not the building, the people, as the church proclaims the gospel, Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. According to verse 22, what we just read here, the stronger one, that is Jesus attacks Satan, attacks the gates of hell, prevails and overcomes him and he takes away Satan's armor and he takes his spoil. He takes the human heart. He divides the spoil. Jesus breaks the chains of sin that have kept that unbeliever in spiritual darkness and he takes him for his own. How does he do that exactly? How does God overcome the hard human heart. Well, in some ways, it's a mystery that can never fully be known because God is God and and we are not. But we're told that it comes from God and it comes by him giving new birth and saving faith to a person so that He or she comes to repent of sin and confess the name of Jesus as Lord and Master. Again, we don't know exactly how God accomplishes that, but he does. We sing a hymn to this effect. In fact, we sang it last week. There are two lines that speak to this mystery of what God does. Here's how the hymn goes. It goes, I know not how, This saving faith, there it is, saving faith. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. And then the the next stanza says this. I know not how his spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, and listen to this, creating faith in him. Somehow God creates and he imparts saving faith to the hard heart and it becomes a heart of flesh. It comes alive, it's, it's a new birth, it's soft toward Jesus. And it sees Jesus as the only hope of salvation. And so it cries out in repentance and belief, which is the chorus to that hymn, but I know who I'm, who, excuse me, I know whom I have believed And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's the only way a person can be saved. It's the only way. It is by faith in Jesus through the glorious grace and mercy of a kind and loving God. But here's the thing, no person, no person can remain neutral in that spiritual war between Jesus and Satan. You cannot be neutral. Neutrality, if you try to say, well, I'm neutral, I'm not really for Jesus, I'm not really against Jesus. No, actually, neutrality means you stand against Jesus. Look at verse 23 again. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now if you were here when we went through Luke nine, you might immediately say, Well wait a minute here This seems like a contradiction to what Jesus said back in Luke 9, verse 50, when Jesus said, don't stop that man over there, for the one who is not against you is for you. So what's going on here? Well, you got to understand the audiences to whom Jesus is speaking. Back in chapter 9, Jesus is talking to his own disciples about their problem with tolerance. And he was telling his disciples back there that if Jesus's power is being used to help people, then they're on our team. But here in chapter 11, Jesus is talking to an audience who is trying to test him. They're trying to trick him. These are Pharisees and they are scribes. They reject his power. They reject his authority. In fact, they are asserting that Jesus is doing what he's doing by the power of Satan. Completely different audience, different context, different recipients. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. You either for Him or you are against Him. And now it seems in verses 24 down to 28, Jesus is now going to expose the person who thinks He's living in the right, who thinks He's being pleasing to God, but he finds out that he's opposed to God and he is in perilous danger. Look again at verse 24. It says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. Notice that, no mention is made here of anyone casting out this demon in verse 24. It just simply states when the unclean spirit has gone out. There are three plausible explanations for what's happening here. Uh, First, it could be, that Jesus did cast out the demon that he's talking about here in verse 24, and this is merely an extension of what he's been describing in verses 21 and 22. However, never in the New Testament is there ever an example of Jesus casting out a demon and it returning like is mentioned here. When Jesus casts out a demon, it is immediate and it is permanent. So it's highly doubtful that Jesus here in verse 24 is describing his own acts of exorcism. Second, another explanation could be that this is an example of a Jewish exorcist casting out the demon. They had their own methods. Apparently, they could produce some kind of temporary results. But again, there's nobody mentioned here. No one is mentioned about casting out the demon. I tend to think it's the third possibility that's happening here. And that is the demon decided to temporarily leave on his own. There's nothing that prevents that from happening. There's nothing that traps him there. In the Old Testament, demons are found often described in deserted cities or kind of roaming around at times. In the New Testament, we're told that popular tradition taught that spirits of evil frequently would go through ruins and desert places coming here and there. And so when Jesus says that this demon had gone out and is passing through waterless places... I believe that he's simply using imagery here to describe that this demon has left this person, whoever this person is, and has gone to a place opposite of what you and I would call inviting. He went to a waterless place. Think about it like this. If you are accustomed to associating good angels with places of order and beauty and fullness of life then it seems natural that we would link evil angels with regions of disorder and desolation and dryness and death. That's Jesus' point. This demon has left and he's gone to some bad place looking for rest. But he couldn't find any. So he wasn't gone for long. Notice what the demon says. I will return to my house from which I came. For whatever reason, and for whatever amount of time this demon was gone, he still claimed ownership over the heart from which he had departed. It is my house, the demon says. Verse 25. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. (laughs) The demon comes back, and things are looking pretty good. The house is swept. It looks clean. The problem is, is that sweeping only takes off the loose dirt, right? The sin that besets the sinner The beloved sin that's in the background is untouched. It's swept in order to keep the filth from being visible to the human eye. But the heart has not been searched and it has not been ransacked for its secret filthiness. I want to show you a picture. Is it on? You have it? Anybody recognize that? (laughs) What is that? Mold, right? If you see that in your house, that is bad news bears. Now, what would happen if I took a nice bucket of white paint and just rolled it over that corner, up and down, over that threshold, or over the the top of the door there, up in that corner? Uh, If I did that, did the mold go away? No. It just temporarily covered it up. Eventually, that mold will eat through the coat of paint that I applied. And in the meantime, it will also and more destructively have spread even further through the drywall. What started off as a bad problem becomes exponentially worse the next time around. Why? Because I didn't get rid of the mold. I covered it up. I swept the room. I put it all in order. It looks nice, but beneath the surface, there is corrosion, something black. There's something broken. There's something that's eating away at what remains. In Matthew's account of this very passage, Jesus adds another important word. In Matthew twelve forty four it says When the demon returns it says I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Empty. The demon left, but nothing was put in his place. The empty room looks harmless. But harmlessness is not the same as holiness. And an empty house is not the same as a warm, welcoming house. Simply refraining from doing wrong is an eternity apart from doing good. Now remember, Jesus here, as he's speaking, is directing his rebuke to the Pharisees, and to the crowds around the Pharisees. It may well be that many of those followers that were there that day had heard John the Baptist preach in months earlier. They have heard his warning from John the Baptist that the axe is already lying at the root of the tree. And maybe that scared him a little bit. Maybe they were frightened enough and and they received his baptism or perhaps they were willing to stop committing some of their obvious and, and gross sins. But just sweeping the house is insufficient. What Jesus demands is entire devotion from the heart. Do you remember that fig tree? that Jesus passed on his way into Jerusalem? He cursed it. Do you remember that? He didn't curse it because it was producing bad fruit. He cursed it because it was producing no fruit. If you remember the parable of the talents, there was one guy that got 10. There was one guy that got five. There was one guy that got one. What did the guy with the one do? He buried it. He still had the one when his master came back, but he hadn't multiplied it. There was no fruit. It could be argued that if you and I wanted to, we wouldn't have to do anything for the hungry or for the thirsty or for the imprisoned. We're we're not making anything bad. We're not making anything worse, but it's certainly not a good thing. We're not doing anything good, at least in the halls of glory. That would be a fail. That is not commendable. Just refraining from the bad thing is not the equivalent of doing the good thing. And here's what I believe Jesus' driving point is with this little example that he gives. He is trying to tell these crowds here, there are some of you who look godly on the outside. You've cleaned up your life. You've tidied your appearance. You've tidied your externals. You've checked all of the boxes of spirituality, but on the inside, you're empty. The mold is still there. You appear to be for Jesus, but you're actually against him. And here's my fear. There may be someone sitting in this room this morning, and that's you. You may have grown up as a cultural Christian. You've gone to church your whole life. You've attended every worship service that was put on. You've been to every Sunday school, you've gone to every potluck Thanksgiving dinner your church has put on. If the doors are open, you were there. You dress up nice, you show up on time, you put your offering in the offering box. You might even be baptized. In fact, when you took your baptism class, you were number one. You knew all the answers, every question the pastor asked from the outside you may look like the model Christian. And if I were to ask you what makes you believe you are a Christian, you might answer with something like, well, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't swear. Hallelujah, I'm a Christian. Friend, let me make a stunning statement to you. A million I don'ts fails to produce even one I do you may be as empty on the inside as the hardened criminal sitting up in the Florida state penitentiary Jesus isn't there it could be that it's just a cultural Christianity you do what you do because that's what good church folk do if that is you Friend, you are in grave danger. Because look what happens, Jesus says, when that darkness comes back to roost in its house. Verse 26 says, It goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. This man whose demon temporarily left, finds that his condition now is worse than ever. Why? Because he was content to have a nice, orderly life without demons. But he didn't bother to fill it was something to replace the demons. When he should have turned to Jesus and asked Jesus to take up residence in his heart so that when the demon returned, the house would be occupied, he neglected the duty. And I would just tell you, refraining from heinous sin is not enough. An evil heart if it is not dealt with decisively by faith in Jesus Christ, it can and it will intensify because evil's ultimate goal, like that mold, is the destruction of the person. I have watched with great horror in my lifetime as some who have pretended to be Christians walk away from the faith. For a long time, they faked it were empty on the inside and eventually satan's forces got the upper hand and they apostatized. the writer of hebrews has a stern warning for this person in hebrews 10 it says for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Matthew Henry commentates on Luke eleven twenty six this way. Quote, The last state of such a person, the apostate, is worse than the first. In respect both of sin and punishment, apostates, he says, are usually the worst of men, the most vain and reckless, the most bold and daring. Their consciences are seared and their sins, of all others, the most aggravated. God often sets his marks of displeasure upon them in this world. And in the other world, they will receive the greater damnation. Let us therefore hear and fear and hold fast our integrity." End quote. Friend, if you've never cast yourself at the feet of Jesus and you are just simply going through the motions... You need to repent. Today is your, your day of salvation. And you and only you are the one who knows that. But the Spirit might be convicting you. Jesus is willing to forgive you. He's willing to take you as your own. He paid the price for your sin. You have to admit it. And you have to believe on him by faith. And now you have to seek to honor him with your life. You still have time because you're breathing here this morning. The danger of a vacant faith cannot be overstated. Well, some dear lady in this crowd who heard Jesus she's just overcome with emotion. And look what she says in verse twenty seven. Blessed just sort of blurts out, Blessed is the wound uh, that bore you in the breast at which you nursed. What, what is she doing? It's kind of like when somebody yells out, Amen, during a worship service, which by the way, that should happen way more here than it does. That encourages the pastor, alright? It's a sense of this woman saying, I wholeheartedly agree with you. The woman was saying, essentially, your mom must be one lucky lady to have you as a son to bear you. She must be blessed. Now, is it true that Jesus's mom, Mary, was blessed? Yeah, she was. She was very blessed. In fact, back in Luke 1, verse 28, Gabriel says to her, Greetings, oh, favored one. You're, you're blessed. The Lord is with you. Mary had the high honor of being the earthly mother of our Lord and Savior. If you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you know that that, blessedness of Mary eventually becomes a whole thing. It's called the veneration of Mary. And Mary takes on a significant role in intercessory prayer. And some even believing she's involved in the redemption process and so on and so forth. But there is no hint of that at all in chapter 11 here. If there was ever a chance for Jesus to teach That sort of understanding of Mary, it would be here in this context. But what does Jesus say instead? Look at verse 28. He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That word rather there, it does not question the truthfulness of the preceding statement. Mary Mary was indeed blessed In one sense, if we could expand the translation of this, we might read it like this. To the woman, what you have said is true as far as it goes, but Mary's blessedness does not consist simply in her relationship with me, but in the fact that she heard the word of God and she kept it. That's where true blessedness is found. for what it's worth later in in Luke chapter 1 in Mary's own song of praise Mary herself acknowledges her need for God's mercy just like every other sinner born on this earth no one is exempt from the necessity of God's grace including the birth mom of our savior So what is Jesus saying in this verse verse 28 He's saying it is possible to hear the word of God, but not obey it. But the blessed life, the life that receives the fullness of the richness of God is the life that demonstrates its faith in obedience to Jesus. Listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again because it is the truthfulness of Scripture. You are saved by faith and faith alone. As I mentioned earlier, God creates that saving faith and he imparts that saving faith. That is how you are saved. You cannot check enough Christian boxes to make yourself a Christian. Your only hope is belief by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his, his resurrection. But as I've said also before, and I repeat, you are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Okay? What do you mean by that, Sean? Well, the proof of your salvation... Is that you obey Jesus from a heart that desires to be pleasing to him. You don't obey Jesus to make yourself look good. You don't obey Jesus so that your friends and family think you're a fine, upstanding Christian. No, you obey Jesus because that brings him glory. That's what makes him happy. And in making him happy you find great delight. What are some of the works that evidence true faith? Well, the first one is that you are a repentant Christian. You are convicted by your sin. You are quick to repent to God and to others. You want a clean conscience before God because sin makes you sick. You hate it. You don't want to have that mold in your life anymore. So you repent. And you love Christ. And you love others, regardless if anyone else is looking. Because you know that God is looking. And it's Him and Him alone that matters to you. You're in His Word. You're studying it, you're meditating on it, you're applying it because you know that that pleases him. And then you do the things that he asks because his glory is all-consuming to you. Do you see the difference? You can do the right thing with the wrong motive. But if you want the blessed life, if you want the true and right relationship with the Father, then you are motivated to obey from a heart transformed and occupied by Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for you. Is your heart occupied by Jesus? Is God calling on you to repent? Maybe it's for the very first time, and if that's the case, I would love to talk to you. Or maybe he's calling you to repent for faking it. Maybe he's calling you to repent because the paint looks nice, but the mold is eating you away. You want to obey him with the right motive. Come talk to me. I'd love to pray for you. Let's stand and pray this morning. Bow your heads with me. God, I'm thankful that you provide the saving faith, that you impart the saving faith, that you call us to obey. I'm thankful that you have provided the means of our salvation, Jesus Christ, that he was willing to live, to die, to rise again, to pay the penalty for our sin, that it's in him alone that we find our hope. It's by faith alone. We also know that when Jesus takes up residence in our heart, that faith does not live alone. It, It evidences itself. It shows itself in good fruit, not just bad fruit going away, and not no fruit, but good fruit. Fruit that is pleasing to you, that's honored to you, that comes from a right motive. God, we want to be a people that are not just cultural Christians, that just do what it looks like to do good so that everybody thinks we're doing good. We want to obey you from a heart that genuinely loves you in gratitude for what you've done for us. Convict us where necessary. Comfort us where necessary. And we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray.